0: Greetings to all the Arizona Bible class students who have been dutifully listening to these recordings as we make our way through the book of Job together. This is actually our seventh lecture in the spring series. We'll have one more next Tuesday night, and that will bring our spring quarter to an end. I'll do my best to complete our journey through the book of Job by that time. Let's begin, though, as we do each week, with a word of prayer. Gracious Father, thank you for bringing us together online this day to read and to study your word. Please open our minds and our hearts to what you have to say, that in better understanding you, we may come to love you more deeply. God our Father, you sent your Son into the world to be its true light, pour out the Holy Spirit he promised us to sow truth in our hearts, and awaken in us obedience to the faith. May we all be born again to new life, and enter the fellowship of your one holy people. And grant this through the Lord Jesus Christ, your Son, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Well, I suppose the good news is that it looks like, slowly but surely, our churches are going to reopen. But... Not in time, I'm afraid, for us to gather together on a regular basis uh, in these last remaining Tuesdays in May. I do look forward, though, to making my regular presentation uh, in August, my summer series, Moses, the Man of God, or as I'm going to call the summer series, A Month with Moses the man and friend of God, and then from there, we'll also book our time in Feeney Hall for the continuation of our spring quarter. So, we'll hold that out, hopefully, as what will be the new normal, if you will, uh, so that we can get back together and back to live teaching. But, for the time being, this is going to have to do. Now, we have made great progress so far in the book of Job. Remember, Job is the opening book in the collections of the books making up the Hebrew Bible that introduce us to wisdom literature, the wisdom literature. Job, followed by the Psalms, followed by the Proverbs, the Song of Songs, Ecclesiastes, etc., is a genre of literature. And we've made a bold for, uh, bold foray into the book of Job as a theatrical presentation that is acted out on a stage with the intent uh, to allow the audience to engage in an age-old question, which is still as valid today as it was in the time of Job, which, by the way, is imagined to be 2,000 years before Jesus, sometime around the lifespan and time of Abraham, which would make it the oldest theatrical piece of literature known to man. Now, having said that, what is the question that is addressed? It is simply, why, sometimes, do bad things happen to good people? The obvious answer, which is presented once, twice, and then a third time, and then a fourth time in The narrative is that bad things never happen to good people. If bad things happen, the people who think they're good are actually not. And whether they know it or not, deserve their fate. Now, we know that Job is a righteous man. And the reason we know that Job is a righteous man is because God tells us so twice in chapter 1. Remember how the particular narrative opened? In the land of Uz, Job chapter 1, there was a blameless and upright man named Job who feared God and avoided evil. In verse 6, One day, when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, Satan also came among them. The Lord said to the Satan, to the adversary, to the prosecuting attorney if you will where have you been and the satan answered the lord and said roaming the earth and patrolling it and the lord said to the satan have you noticed my servant job there is no one on earth like him he is blameless and upright he fears god and he avoids all evil that's who job is As the curtain comes up and we meet him on the stage, a man that God has said specifically to us through the narrator's voice is unlike any man on earth, he and he alone is blameless and upright. He fears God and he avoids evil. Now, the Satan is allowed to destroy his life and to rob him of his good health in an attempt to get him to curse God, which Job refuses to do. And then remember, three friends arrive after a period of mourning, and they each present a series of arguments. First, based on experience. The second, based on tradition, which is historical experience. And then the third, based on the understanding of organized religion. In all three cases, each of the three friends, once, twice, and then a third time, makes the argument that Job must somehow be guilty of something in order uh, to make sense of the disasters that have befallen him. Now, we return to the narrative in Job chapter 20, and this is the end of the second series of challenges of the three friends. Remember, the first, my argument from my lived experience is. The second, historically, when we compound all of the experiences together, my argument is. And the third fellow named Zophar says that codified collection of historical experiences is called religion. And religion teaches. And they all agree that you, Job, can't be blameless and righteous. You have to be guilty of something. And what you really need to do is just confess to anything and God will take his hand off of you. So in chapter 20, we meet again our man of religion, Zophar. And he begins to speak to Job a second time in chapter 20, verse 2. So now he says, my thoughts provide an answer for me because of the feelings within me. A rebuke that puts me to shame the previous statements of Job I hear. And from my understanding, Spirit gives me a reply. Do you not know this from of old? Since human beings were placed on the earth, the triumph of the wicked is short. Their their lives are always cut down. And the joy of the impious lasts just a moment. Though his pride mount up to the heavens and his head reach to the clouds, he perishes forever like the dung he uses for fuel. And onlookers say, Where is he? If you perish like the dung you use for fuel, that fuel, of course, camel dung that's dried, sort of like a cow pie in its appearance, and then used in a fiery furnace of an oven, then you will be consumed by the fires of hell. It goes on to say in verse 12, though wickedness is sweet in his mouth, and he hides it under his tongue. He lies, though he retains it and will not let it go, but keeps it still within his mouth. In his stomach, yet the food shall turn. Its venom be that of asps inside of him. Those who appear outwardly to be righteous and then have these calamities fall upon them as they have upon you. Job are holding their evil within and it's eating you now from the inside out. A person like you, verse 17, shall see no streams of oil, no torrents of honey and milk. He shall give back his gains never used, like his profit from trade never enjoyed. Because In some manner, way, shape, or form, whether he acknowledges it or not, he has oppressed and neglected the poor and stolen a house he did not build. For he has known no quiet in his greed, in his treasure he cannot save himself. None of his survivors will consume it, therefore his prosperity shall not endure. What is the fate of such a man, Job? What is your eternal fate? In verse 26, complete darkness is in store for his treasured ones. A fire unfanned shall consume him. The fires of hell, if you will. Any survivor in his tent shall be destroyed. Because the heavens shall reveal his guilt and the earth rise up against him. The flood shall sweep away his house. Torrents in the day of God's anger. This, Job, is the portion of the wicked. The heritage appointed him by God, and therefore your heritage as well. Now this will allow Job to respond to Zophar and his argument from religion that his fate is sealed, his deeds known to God, and he will suffer eternal torment in hell with the following words. He says in chapter 21, at least Zophar. Listen to my words, and let that be the consolation you offer. Just give me a moment to speak. Bear with me while I speak. And after I have spoken, you can mock on. Is my complaint, have you been listening? Is my complaint toward any man? Why should I not be impatient? Look at me and be appalled. Go ahead, put your hands over your mouths. When I think of it, I am dismayed, and shuddering seizes my Flesh, But here is what I have a problem with. Why? Very important. Verse 7. Do the wicked keep on living? They grow old. They become mighty in power. Their progeny is secure in their sight. Their offspring are before their eyes. Their homes are safe without fear. And the rod of God is not upon them. Their bulls breed without fail. Their cows calve and do not miscarry. In fact, they let their young run free like sheep. Their children skip about with no fear. They sing along with drum and lyre and make merry to the sound of the pipe. They live out their days in prosperity and tranquility and in tranquility go down to Sheol. Yet they say to God on a daily basis, depart from us, for we have no desire to know your ways. They say, what is the Almighty that we should serve Him? And what do we gain by praying to Him? Their happiness is not in their own hands. The designs of the wicked are far from me. How often, Job wonders, in verse 17, is the lamp of the wicked put out? How often does destruction come upon them? The portion God allots in His anger. Job wishes that uh, like straw before the wind, like chaff, in the storm, they would be carried away. He wonders, how is this possible? And he recognizes he has no answer. And so he says, look, religion has not been able to answer the question adequately. Why do bad things happen to good people? But he does recognize and does acknowledge that God is God and he is not. In verse 22, and following. He says to Zophar, can anyone teach God knowledge, seeing that he judges those on high, meaning the angels? One man dies in his full vigor, wholly at ease and content. No reason to pass, but he does. His figure is full and nourished. His bones are moist with marrow. And yet another dies with a bitter spirit, never having tasted happiness, but alike they lie down in the dust. And worms cover them both. See, I know your thoughts and the arguments you plot against me. For you say, Where is the house of the great, and where is the dwelling of the wicked? Have you not asked the wayfarers, and do you not acknowledge the witness they give? On the day of calamity, sometimes the evil man is spared. And on the day that wrath is released, again, the evil man is spared. But who will charge him, meaning God, to his face about his conduct? And for what he has done, who will repay him? He is carried to the grave, and at his tomb they keep watch. Sweet to him are the clods of the valley. All mankind will follow after him, and countless others before him. How empty, you see, the consolation of religion is that you offer me. Your arguments... All three men, he says, remain a fraud. Now, there is going to be another series of posited arguments by our man of experience, our man of tradition, and our man of religion. And it'll actually take us from chapter 22 all the way to chapter 31. I'm just to, tonight going to, uh, for a brief moment, look at some of the highlights of this section between chapters 22 to chapter 31 in order to sort of bring the narrative to a focal point so I can complete the lecture tonight in anticipation of the conclusion of the book of Job next week. So, as I've said, the same three men are going to posit the same three arguments yet again. First, the man of experience, and then the man who will argue from tradition, and then, finally, the man who will argue from the perspective of religion. And, in each case, as before, in each of the previous two cycles, Job will respond. And uh, I want to focus on some of Job's replies, especially in chapter 27 when he's responding to Bil Daad. Bil Daad is our man of tradition that says the collected experiences of all human beings indicates that people who have the kind of things that happen to you are guilty and just need to get over it, acknowledge it, and move on. Now Job in chapter 27 takes up his theme and begins to teach Bildad. He says, As God lives, who takes away my right, the Almighty, who has made my life bitter, I I accept what's happened. So long as I still have breath in me, the breath of God in my nostrils, my lips shall not speak falsehood, nor my tongue utter deceit. You're never going to hear that kind of speech come from my mouth. Far be it for me to account you right, to say, all right, all right, all right, I get it. You win. No, I won't do it. Far be it for me to account you right until I die. I will not renounce my innocence. I am not guilty. My justice I maintain, and I will not relinquish it. My heart does not reproach me for any of my days. I've lived righteously. I've done the right things. Let my enemy be as the wicked and my adversary as the unjust. For what hope has the impious when he is cut off, when God requires his life? Will God listen to his cry when distress comes upon him? If he delights in the Almighty and calls upon God constantly, I will teach you what is in God's hand and the way of the Almighty I will not conceal. So again, Job knows he's an innocent man, and he maintains his innocence. Now that brings us to the end of chapter 27. And there's something unique to be found in chapter 28. In chapter 28, we have a poem about wisdom. And this is part of the wisdom tradition. It's also found in, for instance, Proverbs chapter eight. So I'm going to find my way just briefly to Proverbs chapter 8, because in Proverbs chapter 8, we also have a discourse on wisdom. This, Proverbs chapter 8, from the mind of Solomon. And in Proverbs chapter 8, verses 22 and following, reflecting on holy wisdom, verse 22 of Proverbs 8, The Lord begot me, the beginning of his works, the forerunner of his deeds of long ago, From of old I was formed, at the first before the earth, before Genesis 1 and verse 1. When there was no deep, I was brought forth. When there were no fountains or springs of water, before the mountains were settled into place, before the hills, I was brought forth. When the earth and the fields were not yet made, nor the first clods of the world, when He, God, established the heavens, there I was. When He marked out the vault over the face of the deep, When he made me firm, uh, when he made firm the skies above, when he fixed fast the springs of the deep, when he set for the sea its limit so that the water should not transgress his command, when he fixed the foundations of the earth, then I was beside him as an artisan. I was his delight day by day, playing before him with all the while playing over the whole of his earth, having my delight with men. Now, children, listen to me. Happy are they who keep my ways. Listen to instruction and grow wise. Do not reject it. Sacred wisdom, co-eternal with the Father before creation. This from the mind of Solomon, the year 1000 BC. Job has a chapter, a poem dedicated to wisdom around the year 2. Thousand BC, a thousand years, a full millennium before Solomon. So, as we look at chapter 28, just briefly, begin with me in verse 12. What about wisdom? As for wisdom, where can she be found? Where is the place of understanding? Men do not know her path, nor is she to be found in the land of the living. You hear the feminine pronoun. Uh, Wisdom sacred wisdom is always imagined in the female gender because your mother is a wisdom figure who imparts wisdom to you in the first 10 to 12 years of your life. The deep, the sea says in verse 14, she is not in me and the sea says she is not with me. Solid gold cannot purchase her nor can her price be paid with silver. She cannot be bought with gold from Ophir, with precious onyx or lapis lazuli, Gold or crystal cannot equal her, nor can golden vessels be exchanged for her. Neither coral nor crystal should be thought of. The value of wisdom far surpasses pearls. Ethiopian topaz does not equal her, nor can she be weighed out for pure gold. As for wisdom, where does she come from? Where is the place of understanding? Well, she is hidden from the eyes of every living thing, even from the birds of the air, which defy all in their ability to fly. She is concealed. Abaddon and death, they say only by rumor have we heard of her. But God understands the way to her. It is he who knows her place. For he beholds the ends of the earth, and sees all that is under the heavens, when he weighed out the wind and measured out the waters, when he made a rule for the rain and a path for the thunderbolts. Then he saw wisdom, and appraised her, established her, and searched her out. And to men he said, see, the fear of the Lord is wisdom. Or as Solomon would say, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and to avoid evil, shows that you have complete understanding. And, of course, Job says, I have spent my life honoring God, living with a respect for God, and avoiding all evil. So, again, this poem about wisdom. In chapter 29, important to know how Job assesses his life. And it's been problematic over the course of the last 2,000 years because there have been those commentators on sacred scripture who have read, I think misread, the intent of chapter 29 as a chapter indicating the underlying sin that Job was unaware he committed, the sin of pride. Because he's going to exalt himself by reminding God of all the good things he did. What we need to know is that the good things Job does are done because of his love for God, not to try to attain love from God. The reason he is who he is is because he's living according to God's principles and teachings. It's not prideful. It's rather revelatory to say this isn't the normal course and order of the way men live their lives, and yet I took up the mantle of righteousness. So, for instance, in chapter 29 and verse 12, I rescued the poor who cried out for help, the orphans and the unassisted. The blessing of those in extremity came upon me, and the heart of the widow I made joyful. I rescued the poor, the orphan, the widow. Not look at me I am so proud of myself, but I did those things because I loved and honored God, who said, these are the things that I want you to do. These are acts of righteousness. You see, I wore my righteousness, not proudly, like a garment. Justice was my robe and my turban. I was eyes to the blind and feet to the lame. I was father to the poor and the complaint of the stranger the foreigner, I actually pursued to find a way to bring justice to him or her. I broke the jaws of the wicked man, and from his teeth I forced the prey. I said in my own nest I shall grow old, I shall multiply years like the phoenix. My root is spread out to the waters, the dew rests by night on my branches, my glory is fresh within me, and my bow is renewed in my hand. Now again, this could be read and miss appropriated as pride in the heart of job but it's not he's saying i have lived according to god's directive and god has to be pleased with me because this is the way he wants us all to live for me they listened and waited verse 21 and they were silent for my counsel once i spoke they said no more but received my pronouncement drop by drop they 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 consumed it they waited for me As for the rain, they drank in my words like the spring rains. When I smiled on them, they could not believe it. They would not let the light of my face be dimmed. I decided their course and sat at their head. I lived like a king among the troops, like one who comforts mourners. And again, these are not words of a man filled with pride. They're the words of a man who said, I did what God required. Acts of righteousness. Remember, in Judaism, one great lesson that I remind you of constantly is that God is more concerned about your deeds than he is your creeds, right? And the two should be synonymous with one another. But at the end of the day, do the deeds, right, of righteousness to bless, to counsel, to provide, to clothe, to visit those in need. We call those actions, the corporal works of mercy, meaning corporal, the works of mercy that we do one body for another, not just in theory, but in practice. But now, in verse 30, they all hold me in derision, men who are younger than I, whose fathers I should have disdained to rank with the dogs of my flock. In verse 9, now they sing of me In mockery, I have become a byword among them. And so again, he cries out to God. In verse 20, I cry to you, God, but to date you do not answer me. I stand, but to date you take no notice. You have turned into my tormentor, and with your strong hand you attack me. You raise me up and drive me before the wind. I'm tossed about by the tempest. Indeed, I know that you will return me to death, to the house destined for every living person. Yet should not a hand be held out to help such a wretched person as myself in distress? Did, he says, I not weep for the hardship of others? Was not my soul grieved for the poor? Yet when I looked for good, I find evil came. When I expected light, Now just darkness. My inward parts seethe and will not be stilled. Days of affliction have overtaken me. I go about in gloom without the sun. I rise in the assembly. I cry for help. I have become an outcast. A brother to jackals. A companion to ostriches. No one wants me in their company. My blackened skin falls away from me. My very frame is scorched by the heat. My lyre is tuned to mourning. And my reed pipe to the sound of... Of weeping. You see, he says, I made a covenant with my eyes, and not to gaze upon a virgin, I lived a life of purity. What portion comes from God above? What heritage from the Almighty on high? Is it not calamity for the unrighteous and woe for evildoers? That's the way it's supposed to work. Does he not see my ways and number all my steps? If I have walked in falsehood and my foot has hastened to deceit, let God weigh me in the scales of justice. Thus he will know my innocence. And that's what Job has maintained throughout the entirety of this narrative. And so in verse 35 of chapter 31, Job cries out, Oh, that I had one to hear my case. Here is my signature. Let the Almighty answer me. Let my accuser write out his indictment. Surely I I should wear it on my shoulder, or you can put it on me like a crown. Of all my steps, I should give him an account. Like a prince, I should present myself before him, meaning God. If my Lord has cried out against me till its furrows wept together, if I've eaten its strength without payment and grieve the hearts of its tenants, then let the thorns grow instead of wheat and stink weed instead of barley. And you can see now, this is very important. At the end of chapter 31 and verse 40, the last words of that chapter and the words of Job are ended. Now, when the words of Job end, you would expect, and you won't be disappointed, that God would speak up and say, all right, thank you very much. It's now my turn. And that actually takes place. In chapter 38, look at chapter 38, the opening verse, just for a moment. The words of Job come to an end. And in chapter 38, then the Lord answered Job out of a storm. And the last act of the theatrical presentation comes to a conclusion. So why do we have chapters 32, 33... 34, 35, 36, and 37? Well, they're obviously added at a later date, right? And the reason for the addition is unclear. The addition features the appearance of a young man named Elihu, who will speak from beginning to end in chapters 32, 33, 34, 35, 36, and 37 because... Job isn't allowed to speak due to the fact at the end of chapter 31, we read the words of Job are ended. What we won't take the time to do, but what I can tell you is a reality about the speech, speeches of Elihu, is that they are ultimately the same repetitious pronouncements made by the three friends of Job. That is, those who argue from Experience, those who argue from the collection of experiences we call tradition, and those who codify the tradition into a framework that we call religion. He doesn't move the dial. We don't need him. But but he's there nonetheless, and so at some point this extra act was added to the play. Now we'll meet Elihu and and understand the context of why he's where he is, but we're not going to take the time to walk through all of his arguments. We've heard them all before. But in chapter 32, just to read down to the end of uh, verse 8 or 9, let's meet this character who will be featured in the next seven chapters. After this, the three men ceased to respond to Job because in his own eyes... He was in the right. And they knew they would never convince him otherwise. But the anger of Elihu, the son of Barachel, the butzite of the clan of Ram, was kindled. He was angry with Job for considering himself rather than God to be in the right. How dare he? He was angry also with the three friends of Job because they had not found a good answer and had not condemned Job. But since these men were older than he, Elihu, bided his time before addressing Job. When, however, Elihu saw that there was no reply in the mouths of the three men, his wrath was inflamed, and so he speaks up, and he won't stop speaking until the end of chapter 37, by beginning his first series of speeches. I am young, and you four are very old. Therefore I held back, and was afraid I was afraid to declare to you my knowledge. I thought, days should speak, and many years teach wisdom. But there is a spirit in man, the breath of the Almighty, that gives them understanding. It is not those of many days who are wise, and it is based on Middle Eastern culture and custom, nor, and we should read, just the aged in his understanding who understand the right. Listen, therefore... I say to me. I also will declare my knowledge. Behold, I waited for your words and have given ear to your arguments as you searched out what to say. Yes, I followed you attentively and none of you has convicted Job. Not one could refute his statements. So do not say, we have met wisdom. God can banish him, but no man. For Had he addressed his words to me, I would not have had answered him with your words. And yet, he is going to. They are dismayed. They make no more reply. Words fail them. I'm not going to wait any longer. Now that they speak no more and have ceased to make a reply, I too will speak my part. I also will declare my knowledge. And you'll see, it's true. He says in verse 18 of himself, I am full of of words. The spirit within me compels me. My belly is like unopened wine, like wineskins ready to burst. Let me speak and obtain relief. Let me open my lips and reply. I would not be partial to anyone nor give flattering titles to any, for I know nothing of flattery. If I did, my maker would soon take me away. So therefore, O Job, hear my discourse. Listen to all my words. Behold, now I'm going to open my mouth, my tongue, and my voice will form words. And I will state directly what is in my mind. My lips shall speak knowledge clearly. For the Spirit of God made me. The breath of the Almighty keeps me alive. If you are able, refute me. Drop your arguments and take your stand. Well, Job can't because... His words have come to an end. But Elihu will begin a series of speeches that will recount the same arguments that have already been made. And all of that then will come to an end in chapter 38. And in chapter 38 to the end of the book of Job in chapter 42, God is going in a disembodied voice to have his say on that stage. And I'm going to reserve those chapters for our lecture next week. So that brings this seventh lecture of the spring quarter to an end. And again, I thank you for taking the time to read along with me and hear my musings about this most compelling wisdom literature. Uh, Remember as well that it's not too late to sign up for our trip to Israel. Where it's go we've we've secured the flights and we have all of our plans laid well Israel will be receiving cruise ships as early as the middle of June and the opening of July and of course we plan to be there in October so if you're interested do remember you can go to the arizonabibleclass.com website and on the left side of the page follow the prompts through the travel opportunities to arrive at the website of Executors, also known as DevotionTravel.com. And there you can find information about the trip and how to sign up. So until next week, and most certainly until I see you again, never forget what a great student you are. Thank you for being with me today. Good night and God bless.